journey. Um, we've been in this passage in Luke chapter 14, and, um, and again, I hope that again, this is becoming more and more part of your thinking and, and understanding as we've looked into this passage of Scripture. Uh, I'm going to read this to you. Um, I will tell you that also tomorrow night is a night where we'll do um, extra music. I know we've been kind of doing music and stuff too, but we'll do a little extra, like, a, like we would say a sacred concert we'll do tomorrow night. And then I'll conclude the passage of Scripture that we've been kind of working through uh, tomorrow night and just how encouraging it is and how challenging it is as we look through even to that. Teenagers are excited. I know we're, you know, you guys went out and about and uh, tried to invite people to Cola Wars and it was just kind of fun. I was kind of helping with the training part of it as they sent out. And, um, and so just excited about what could happen on Thursday night, 5.30 to 8.30. Uh, it's Pepsi versus Coke. A camp, crazy games, camp games, free pizza, and then a gospel message. And so that's for the teens on Thursday night. Specifically at 7 o'clock-ish time is the time where the, that message will be preached. And so uh, pray for them, uh, even though they start at 5.30. Luke 14, verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple." Salt is good, Jesus says, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. And then he concludes, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. As we've been looking at this passage, we've been challenged by it. It's really the true cost of real discipleship. We considered the crowds and, and Jesus speaking to them and calling them to come to Him, and yet in the midst of that, to be an authentic disciple. Well, obviously, you can't get away from that because you see the whole idea of being His disciple in verse 26, verse 27, and verse 33 as He warns people and He's challenging people. But in the midst of all of that, we realize He wasn't calling you to go hate people. He was calling you to love Him supremely. That in any other kind of relationship, it would almost be as in comparison like hatred in your comparison for your love for God. You just love Him supremely. And that's really the first thing that we came out to. The first point was, number one, a genuine disciple of Jesus is a person who loves Christ supremely. And then last night we looked at the idea of bearing the cross and what that even meant. And we came to that conclusion as well that a genuine disciple of Jesus is a person who surrenders to Christ fully, full surrender, not partial, not kind of, sort of, but full surrender. As we begin to consider that idea of even that cross-bearing tonight, I go into this message, and in many ways I can say this, this segment that I'm getting ready to speak to you, which would be point number three, or you know maybe point number one or two, depending on which night, you've, if you've missed any, okay? 
But here it is, as we look at this one tonight, I think the evidence sign here is this. A genuine disciple of Jesus is a person who counts the cost carefully. They think. Jesus wants you to use your brain. He wants you to think. Let me pray tonight. May God give us help as we would think. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your kindness to us. You've showered us with blessings, Lord, not just in creation, but in giving us this amazing revelation, your word. And Lord, as we have begun to dig into your word, specifically in this passage, Lord, you have been challenging our hearts. And Lord, as we would humble ourselves before you, you change us. Lord, that we would submit ourselves to you and your word. Tonight, would you give us ears to hear Lord, and there would be clearly people in this room who would not be in Christ. And Lord, as I think about that, I think about how many people sometimes think they really are and they're not. Lord, you even tell us in your word that many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we even do good works, even cast out demons? And you say to them, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, you who live in your sin. I don't know you. Or there are people who will claim your name and yet without any genuine conversion. There'll be people, Lord, as you tell us in, our, in your word, that, that broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many go that way, and narrow is the way that leads to life, and very few find it. God, I pray that there's someone here tonight without Christ, that you would clearly point that out in their heart, that tonight would be the night where they would humble themselves in genuine repentance and faith in Christ alone, where there have been multiple people during these services that have raised their hand, uh, asking for prayer about salvation. Lord, bring them to true saving faith. And then I pray for many in this room who, who are in Christ. God, would you stir us that we would consider what it really means to follow you on a daily basis. So God, please empower me tonight. Use me tonight as I would preach your word. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Um, for many, many summers, we would spend our summers working at Northland Camp and Conference Center. Actually, that's north of Green Bay, Wisconsin, and about an hour, 20 minutes north. Um, there would be, at, at any given summer, uh, about um, uh, 400 to 600 campers a week, and you would kind of run about 10 weeks long. We had about 150 staff members that we would kind of train for that. And so uh, many of you guys think of that or think of like the wilds and again, the sister camp. And so anyway, as we were, as we were up there, I remember one summer I, we were directing like the junior side, the junior camp, and we would do that in the summers. And we drive there and we park our trailer and get things ready. And, and it's before the staff all came in. And so the staff was getting ready to come in. We're going to have staff training for a couple of weeks. And then actually, then we, we kind of go all, all out for camp. Well, I go, and if I get an opportunity to, I do like to work out. I don't always get to, but I like to work out. And so they had a workout facility. So I go to this workout facility. They, they, you know, the staff wasn't there yet. And so it's kind of nice. And so I go work out. And, and actually, when I went to work out, I met a teenager there. And the teenager was from Greenville, South Carolina. And I'm like, well, hey, we're from the same place. We'd never met each other before. And uh, he, had be, he was coming there to work camp. And, and so I said, oh, that's kind of cool. And we're having a conversation. And the more we talked, it was very clear that this guy would be what we would call a project. Now, don't get me wrong. We're all projects, if you understand but as I'm talking to him, I'm realizing he's not counseling anybody. 
he needs counsel. You understand what I mean? So I'm like, the more I'm talking to him, and again, we're kind of have this friendship, and, and, um, and then it was the day before all them were coming, all the staff, and I go one more time to go work out, and, and he happens to show up, and, and I say, hey, how are you doing? Good. And he, then he says this to me, well, I think I'm going home tomorrow. And I'm like, going home tomorrow? What are you talking about? Like, like, that's like everyone comes in tomorrow. Like, then staff training for like two weeks. And we got, you know, eight weeks, ten weeks of camp. I mean, what are you talking about? And then he looked at me and said this. Well, my girlfriend's pregnant. Well, at least I think she is. And so because of that, you know, I'm going to go back to Greenville and I'm going to get married. And I said, oh, oh. And he, you know, saw that I wasn't like overjoyed for him or something too. And he goes, well, you know, we did what we did because we love each other. And I said, well, can I speak some truth to you? Actually, that's, that's not love. It's called lust. You don't take someone's purity. That's, that's not love. Um, that would not be God's plan, and it's not God's will that you would have done that. Um, and he wasn't actually, like, he didn't get mad at me for that. I don't know if he'd ever heard anyone kind of speak truth to him that way, but I just said that's not, that really isn't love. That's actually called lust. Um, and then I said, but if you're going to get married, that's, that is a big deal. And I said, you know, because weddings can cost a lot of money. You know, you got the dress even, you know, you got the, the, even the cake and all the stuff that you're going to do at the wedding and stuff too. And he goes, oh, well, I think we're just going to, you know, like go to the justice of the peace or something like that. And I, and sarcastically a little bit, I it can be a little sarcastic sometimes, but I said, oh, well, that'll be memorable. And, um, and then I said, well, if you're going to get married, I mean, you're, you obviously got a place to live. Where are you guys going to live? And he says, um, uh, well, I think we're going to live with my mom. Yeah, I think we're going to live with my mom. And I said, well, can I, can I give you some premarital advice, okay? And this would be biblical advice. The scripture teaches that you leave your father and mother and you cleave to your spouse. And so uh, you need to kind of leave. It would be very smart and very wise not to live with mom and dad as a newlywed couple, okay? And you, so you got to find a place. So you, in other words, uh, maybe you can find a one-bedroom apartment in Greenville, South Carolina. Now, this is a number of years ago for somewhere like five, $600 a month, you know, and again, it's a number of years ago. But, and he looked at me, though, and goes, $500 a month? And I said, yeah, and then you've got to pay utilities. He goes, utilities, what's that? I said, well, you don't just get like the, you know, free water and, you know, and gas, electricity and those kind of things. So you've got to pay for this. Why don't you add a couple hundred dollars more on top of that? And he goes, whoa. And then, I, and then I said, well, what about a vehicle? Do you guys have a vehicle? And he goes, well, I think we're just going to use my mom's. And I'm like, well, does your mom have multiple vehicles? He said, no. Uh, does your mom have a job? Yeah, yeah, you're not, you don't need to be using your mom. You, you need a vehicle. And so you're going to have to probably buy a beater of some sort, maybe $500 to $1,000, and hopefully it runs, and you got to get insurance on top of that. And, this, and he's going, whoa, whoa. And then I'm asking, too, are you prepared for this? Because, you know, having a baby's a big deal. Like, are, uh, do you guys have insurance? I mean, I mean, like, even with insurance in the past, I mean, I think we had to pay a $4,500 deductible, you know, $4,500. And then, and then there's cer certain areas, I mean, a smooth birth, it might be six to eight grand or something you might end up paying. And he's like, whoa, whoa, you know, not, and I'm like, and then, are, you know, you got all those diapers you got to buy, you know, are you kidding me? And I uh, should have invested a long time ago in those things. But anyway, diapers. And then you've got like, is mom feeding? Is it formula feed? I mean, I mean, all of this, you know, and he, oh, oh, oh and he, he just not thought any of this. And then my next question was simply this, do you have a job lined up? And he goes, uh, no. I said, well, hey, this is life. You got, you got to think about life. 
he actually walked out of the weight room and he looked like he had worked out, but he didn't work out at all. It's like, it's like it's dawning on him and the weight was coming down on him about those thoughts of all these things. And I say this because we do live in a world where people don't think. They don't use their brains. I mean, we got these shows like the world's dumbest criminals and dumb, you know, I mean, it's, a, it's like people don't think. And actually, you even have religions that are out there who will tell you, you know, don't think, empty your brain, mm, you know, like this. And, and there's an element where I love biblical Christianity, but not just because of the logic of it, but here is Jesus telling you to use your brain, to think, to count or consider the cost. Actually, I love even if you go to Philippians and, you know, what sort of things are true and honest and just and lovely and pure and all these things, if there be virtue and praise, what do you do? You think on these things. So this is a, a biblical, uh, really, desire and command of God for you to use your brain. And so I love this passage of Scripture. And I will say this, in many ways, tonight's message is so easy to preach because it's like illustrations, uh, I know and when I'm preaching, and I know Pastor Caleb would be the same way. You preach and you start dealing with doctrine and, and you start getting heavy a little bit and then you start losing people, you know. It's going to be a long day at work. And, you know. and then I bring in a little story or something like this and or a little way of illustrating something and all of a sudden everyone kind of perks up again. And so here's Jesus in his message and he gives these illustrations. So tonight as we're considering the idea of counting the cost carefully... Um, what does he mean by this? And we find our first thought here in verse 28. He says this, For which of you... Now this is masterful for him just to say that because he draws everybody in the whole uh, congregation, you could say, the whole crowd, into the illustration. So which ones of you... So which of you, he says, and then you go on further, desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish. All who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. What does he mean by this? Actually, it's interesting because within the culture, I've got to have you kind of drawn back into their culture because that's really how you really interpret and read the scriptures. You've got to go back to what did it mean when it was written and what are they saying here. And actually, what kind of a tower would this be? Is this kind of a watchtower? It could be. It could be the idea of a tower structure there where they can oversee their, maybe their fields and or maybe the idea that they can even see that the enemy could be coming. But here's a person in the emotion of it all, it's like, you know what, I want to build a tower, never really considering how much it would cost, and they begin to build the structure, and they run out of money, and they can't continue to build. Now, the difference between their culture and our culture, one thing would be is this, their society was what is known as a shame-based society. Now, what does that mean? It means you didn't just do things on a whim, I mean, you could shame your family name. You could shame yourself. You could ruin your life. You just didn't do things. It was tight-knit, you could say, as a community. People live, in many ways, you could say, close by. It wasn't like, you know, in our culture, some of you know, no one drove 20 miles to get to church because no one drove, you know what I mean? And so the nature of a close-knit, tight-knit style, and I would say we do have some cultures that still are that way. I think of a Japanese culture, 
And in Japanese culture, you better be careful what you do. You could shame your family name. You could ruin your own future and name. And so in many ways, here is a person caught up in the emotion, never considering really the cost. And they just emotionally seem to make a decision. And now I, I say that, and I, I think of the teenagers that are, that are here. And um, now you have to remind me of your name again. Okay, I don't want to pick on you. Okay, what is it? Jeremiah. Jeremiah, okay. How old are you again? Oh, this is perfect. Okay. So <laughs> let's just say Jeremiah is like, you know, sick of living at home. You know, he's like, you know what? I'm sick of living at home. I am 15. I know life and I'm ready to go, you know? And so he says that, you know, he's got a big family and, you know, he wants his own place, you know? So he's been kind of watching some shows and, and as he sees these, these shows where they like, you know, f- you know, flip it and those kind of shows and it's like with the houses and stuff too. And he, he kind of says, ah, I kind of like a house like that. So anyway, he, he decides to go to the local bank and he goes and he walks in and he says, hey, you know, my name's Jeremiah and I, I, I'm, I'd like to get a loan to, for a house. And they say, oh, okay. And they're kind of looking at him, kind of not sure, because he's kind of tall. I'm not sure age-wise. And he comes in, they talk to a loan officer. And actually, initially, when they say loan officer, he's like, an officer? And he's like, no, 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 it's like a loan officer. They're the ones who go, oh, okay, okay. So he comes in, and um, hypothetical, okay. So anyway, and, um, and then Jeremiah says, you know, I've been watching these shows and seeing these houses they're so cool. And you know what I want to do is, is I, I think a good starter home, uh, you know, I want a house with a you know, garage and stuff too. I want a pool and, and these kind of things. It'd be a great starter home. So if you could just loan me 1.2 million, I think that would be a good starter home. <laughs> and they say, well, uh, do you have a lot of money? Well, no. Yeah. Do you have an account with us? No. Do you? Are your, are your parents just independently wealthy? No, no, I don't know. So anyway, no, you know, let's just say, so listen to this. And then he says, well, what's taking you guys so long? I just want 1.2 million. What do you think the loan officer would say to Jeremiah? <laughs> I think maybe if he was kind, he might just say it this way. Get out. <laughs> And the truth is, is it would be kind of somewhat shameful. Like he leaves and let's just say, you know, now again, Jeremiah, I'm picking on him. He wouldn't do that. Okay. So, but you know, and, and then when he leaves, what would that loan officer do? He'd walk around the bank and say, you will not believe what just happened to me. This 15 year old came in, you know, 1.2 million. Like we just kind of give it away, you know, <laughs> you know, and then if he was in the banking industry for a while, what would he do? He would, people be telling stories of some kind of Christmas party, banking, you know, party. And sure enough, that, that all of a sudden I got one. You know, this 15-year-old named Jeremiah comes in, 1.2 million. Like, we just give it away. Ah, 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 ah. Yeah. We're kind of getting a little bit. Okay, so I'm picking on Jeremiah. Right. He wouldn't do that. Yeah, he's, he's tough. <laughs> he's got a lot of siblings to pick on him. Okay, all right. Um, in the other side of it, let's say you, in our modern day, have a lot that's open beside you. And now someone seems to buy it. And actually, the ground is to be moved. The footers are kind of in place. You start seeing a structure being put up. Big dirt mounds and different things around and dumpsters stuff too. And then all of a sudden, it just stops. And it stops for the next six months. And now it's a year later, and nothing's moved on this. And you realize someone ran out of money. Something happened here. And now all you have is a halfway built structure with big, huge mounds of dirt and a dumpster and... uh, and what has that just done to your property? It's just devalued your own property. I think we get it to an extent. What's he teaching us here? And I believe this is the lesson you'll learn. Number one is this. 
emotional decisions for Christ are shameful decisions. Now, I'm careful as I say that, but I want to say that again. Emotional decisions for Christ are shameful decisions. What I mean by this is this. If they are are merely emotional, emotions come and go. They don't last. And, And so here's a person who emotionally gets charged and may make a decision, but then when the emotion wears off, it's like the decision's gone. And, and you might have seen people that way, even within a church, and they respond for it in a service of some sort or whatever, and, and they want to get saved. There's a lot of tears, and you're thinking, for sure they got saved because look at all the tears, you know? But then, it, then comes the next week, and they don't want to go to church. And the next week, and they don't want to go to church. They don't have anything to do with Jesus. They don't want to do anything to a church. And you go, well, well, they're just having a bad day. Doesn't work that way. And so you begin to consider this, and I'm saying, I don't want to preach against emotion because a lot of times there is emotion, but I, I'm looking at a group of people, and I do realize that there's a lot of engineers in this room probably too, which might mean that there's not a lot of emotion in this room. I don't know. <laughs> uh, sorry, that was bad. Okay, so in that though, here's my question. How many of you, there's a time in your life where you genuinely were born again, and, that, and when you got saved, that there was for sure some emotion. Maybe there's tears, and there was definitely some emotion when you got saved. Again, I'm just curious that, that, that was there. Would you raise your hand if that's the case? Okay. And then how many of you would say, Jeremy, it's evident I have been born again, but it wasn't necessarily a lot of emotion, but it's clear that God has changed my life, and Christ is my Lord and Savior. I have been saved. And you would slip your hand up, okay? All right. Did you see that? It was, it was not necessarily half and half, but something close to that. I'm not, I'm not preaching against emotion. Um, the truth is, 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 is true preaching, I feel like, should have some emotion. Hello, do you believe what you're preaching, you know, in a sense? I, I hate boring exposition, and exposition should never be boring. It should be alive because the Scripture's alive, okay? But there's a nature of within that, you know what I'm talking about. If it's only emotion, emotions come and go. Now, I would also say the same thing. So you could say emotional faith is not true saving faith. The same way as intellectual faith. You could have all the intellectual knowledge. Now, maybe that would be something to, to think about with, even within an engineering realm and a lot of intellectual knowledge and you could have all the head knowledge and still die in your sins. It's not intellectual faith that's saving faith. But you must understand it. And what does it do? It sinks from the head to the heart to the life where you say, I don't want my sin. And what are you doing? It's like mind, will, emotions. All of you are saying, I, don't, I want Christ and turning to Christ alone. So you kind of hopefully understand exactly where I'm coming from. And I say this because, because even as we deal with children's ministries, I will remind you is, is we're really careful with kids' ministries. I, I mean, again, as I kind of made a mockery of somewhat Sunday morning, like Sunday school area as I'm talking through um, a biblical evangelist. I mean, I told, back in the day, I said I, I, to our junior camp staff, I think I can get any kid to re-pray a prayer through emotional manipulation. You don't want to go down there, do you? With all those flames, all alone. Don't you want to be with mommy and daddy? They're going to be in heaven. 
I mean, there, there's an element where you, and, and actually there, there's, there's, there can be emotional manipulation. I was in a service years ago and this, this guy was this, like this gospel magician kind of guy thing, you know, at this church in Chicago. And, and so, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing. And they had like a Sunday afternoon and we're going to use this guy and he was doing something. I, I think our team did some music even at the time. And now all of a sudden this guy does this gospel magic, gospel illusion, whatever. And it wasn't, it was not a clear presentation of the gospel at all. I mean, it was, and he really struggled, I think, with his ma- magic too. Okay, but anyway, let's just. In the, pro- in the process though, he then says to the crowd, and they had bust in a bunch of kids from the inner city of Chicago. How many of you, if you died right now, you know that you wouldn't go to heaven? Okay, well, a bunch of kids, you know, weren't sure, you know, in that sense. Get it, I get that. Uh, I like to ask questions. But he said this, you know, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, with your hand up. Now stand up. If you're raising your hand, stand up where you are right now. Go ahead, stand up. Yep, stand up. What do you think they did? They stood up. He says, if you're standing up, I want you to look at me right now. So they did. And if you're looking at me right now, you need to get saved. And, and, and I want you to come forward right now and stand up here in front. I want you to line up front. Yep, come on, come on. Go, let's go. And now all of a sudden, they're all lined up in front of everybody. He's got a microphone. He's got a second microphone. And he says this, listen, you need to get saved. And you need to pray this prayer right after me. And here you go. We'll start off with this one. And we'll work our way down. And he began to pray prayers like this. And these kids are doing it. What would you do? You're in front of all these people. I don't even know these people. You know, you're a busting kid from inner city Chicago. And, I, and then when it's all said and done, well, amen, all these kids just got saved. There's a bunch, there's about 15 more in the, in the Sunday school hour, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, this is awful. And I see the pastor scrambling, which I'm thinking, thankfully, you know, this is awful. And hopefully they never had that guy ever again or something like this. I mean, you're going, this is a manipulation here. Jesus is preaching against emotional decisions, but that's not the only thing. Look at number two, okay? As you look at the second illustration, now he says this, he says, or what king if you're listening to the message, he, he's like calling you a king. It's like, sir, you're sitting here and you've got your kingdom. That's kind of cool. Or ma'am, you're here and you've got a queendom or something. I don't know. You've got, you got something, but you're a ruler. And he says, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him that comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the others yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Now, wait a second here. So, so here you are, you're a king. You have, you have 10,000 troops, and they have 20,000. You're watching a map, and you're kind of seeing this, and going, whoa, they're conquering and slaughtering all these places, and, they're make, and it looks like we're the next place on the map. You know, they're coming our way, okay? Now, what would you do? Now, I know what some of you are thinking, and I'm going to say stop thinking what you're thinking, because you're thinking modern day. Stop it, okay? Because you'd, some of you are thinking, well, it doesn't really matter, Jeremy. <laughs> I have a nuke. <laughs> you, we, uh, we win. You know, no, no, you don't have that, okay? You don't have that. No bunker buster kind of bombs. You don't have you know, grenades or machine guns. You got sword and shield. They got sword and shield. That's kind of where it is. They're, um, they're slaughtering everybody. And they're coming your way. What would you do? They're not here yet. But clearly you are outnumbered. And you will die. If you're thinking, you might consider a way out. 
And maybe you would run like these people would do. It's like here they are. They, hey, they're not here yet. Let's send a delegation. Let's go there. Let's wave the white flag. Are you kidding me? Let's drop ourselves down before them. Let's give them goods and money or whatever too and say, what are your conditions of peace? We know you're more powerful and you'll slaughter us in that sense. But please don't kill my wife and don't kill my kids and don't kill my family and my friends and my kingdom. Please, what are your terms of peace? This is a thinking person, isn't it? This is a person who's truly considering the cost. You could say this. Number one, emotional decisions for Christ are shameful decisions. Number two, wise decisions are actually humble, thoughtful, and serious. The humility is there because they're not here yet. Let's send a delegation. That's humility. It's thoughtful as well. They're still not here. Let's go to them first and let's, let's consider whether the terms of peace, they're so serious because in, that, in this culture, in this illustration, it is life or death. Now remember, all of this is meant to be, an eter- meant to be a, a spiritual style of illustration, isn't it? To consider the cost. In one sense, you could say this, there is a king coming, the greatest king of kings and lord of lords. And when he comes, remember, he came the first time as a humble servant, given his life as a ransom for many, Scripture teaches. But when he comes back the second time, he comes back as a conquering king. Those who have not humbled themselves and bowed the knee, what will happen to them? Those who reject the love of Christ will receive the very wrath of God. And so now it's like it's like, you know, the enemies. And, and so I kind of say this in one sense to say, listen, if you're here tonight and you are not saved, you're in big trouble when it comes to the judgment. And yet he's coming. The greatest judge and king is coming. So humble yourself, please. This is life or death. This is eternal life and eternal death. I plead with you. But as you begin to consider this, again, wise decisions are humble. They're thoughtful and serious Can I give you a better illustration even within the context in a sense? Take your Bible, go a couple pages probably to to the right there and you'll find Luke chapter 18 and look at verse 18. Count the cost. Luke 18 verse 18, many of you know this story here, true story. It's called the story really of the rich young ruler. Remember this story? So you have this man, he's a ruler, he asked him in verse 18, good teacher, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That is a, gr- that is a great question. I mean, if someone knocks on my trailer door, you know, I come to the door and they say, hey, can you tell me how to get eternal life? <laughs> come on in. Yeah. I'm like, oh, this, you want these conversations. There's nothing about this guy that you see in any of the context or even the parallel passages that he's trying to trick Jesus. Now, there are some we saw on Sunday that are trying to trick him, but not this guy. He seems to be coming with very much a genuine reality. Hey, can you, good master, can you, can you show me how to get eternal life? Actually, interestingly enough, uh, Jesus responds to him. And, and that, can I also remind you, he's the rich, young ruler. He's rich. We know that. We don't know how he got his riches. Maybe, maybe he's, a wise, he's wise in business, maybe through inheritance, but he's, he's wealthy. How many of you think it would be kind of nice to be really, really wealthy? It would be kind of cool, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, you're like, so you're like, not me, Jeremy. No, I don't want that. You know, you're the opposite. Okay, but anyway... Um, Rich, he's young. 
Um, if he's young and a ruler, that means in that culture, he's got to be somewhere probably at least around 30. So he's young. He's got clout as a ruler. He can, he's, got, he's got power and he's got somewhat some prestige. He's got, again, he's like a character. I mean, this, this guy, what is he a ruler of? Is he a ruler of a synagogue? Well, you know, it's, it's like here he is. He, he's, got, he's, he's got like, you know, maybe the American dream. But he knows he's missing something. And so he comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, well, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Do you not realize in the culture at that time, no one was called good that was reserved for God alone? And so for him to say good teacher was a pretty kind of a shocker a little bit. And yet Jesus is going to key in on that. And he's saying that hey, that's reserved for God, God alone. Now, do you notice what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, don't you call me that. Because who is Jesus? He's God. So he's, he's kind of, you're, gonna, you're watching Jesus, the master soul winner. You're watching him draw this man in. In other words, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, why do you call me good? No one is truly good except for God. You're kind of saying something here. But let me go on. And as he goes on, what does he say? In verse 20, he says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not, do not um, bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. What? You're not saved by the commands? Jesus, don't you know, like Ephesians, you know, 2, 8, and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. I mean, so what, what are you doing, Jesus? Now, if you've been in the pre-service, you know exactly what he's doing. Because, again, the law is that guardian, that tutor that brings us to Christ. It is the nature of Romans 7, verse 7, where Paul said, I would not have known sin but by the law. Jesus is doing something very masterful. He's taking him straight to the moral laws. And as he sees, says this, he says, you know, here's what you got to do. You got to, you know, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And the guy says... I mean, all these I've, I've kind of kept from my youth. I don't think he's trying to trick Jesus. I, I really think he's looking at this in a very surfacey way. I mean, he's saying this, and, you know, consider what he says there. You know, he, you know, you're, you're, you know do not commit adultery. I mean, listen, I, I, I love my wife. I don't want to cheat on her. Um, do not murder. Well, I haven't killed anybody. Do not steal. Honestly, I like to try to have a good business dealings and do not bear false witness. I don't want to lie or slander people. I, I really try to speak the truth. Honor your father and your mother. Well, I love my parents. I, I mean, for the most part, I've, I've kind of kept these from my youth. Now, he's not really looking at them, is he, though? Because if you really look how Jesus defined it and Scripture even goes further, you start realizing, whoa, because again, you should not commit adultery. But Jesus says, but I tell you, if you even look at somebody there, you've got those immoral thoughts. You've committed adultery already in your heart. Now, again, across the audience and span this, who in this room has never had a dirty thought ever? I mean, the whole point is we're all guilty. 
And yet the nature of even beyond that, and then he says, you know, do not, do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Now, have you ever hated anyone? Because Scripture, remember, in 1 John, if you have hatred in your heart, you're like a murderer in God's eyes. You ever hated anybody? You go further, do not steal. Have you ever stolen something? Now, I'm curious, in this room, how many of you have ever, be honest, you've ever stolen something, even if it's something really, really small? Would you raise your hand? Okay, let's slip it up. Ooh, pastor, I saw that. Okay. <laughs> now, when you think about this for a minute, again, we kind of, I'm, I'm making it light in that sense, but I will say this. Obviously, when you think about stealing, what would you call someone who steals? You call them a thief, do not bear false witness. The idea of slander and lying. How many lies have you told in your lifetime? And do you not realize that here's God who doesn't lie? God actually tells us and teaches us that, the, that you are of your father the devil because he's a liar from the beginning. That's what we naturally do. So the nature of that is that we've all told lies and we can't even tell the number. We just, I mean, we lie by, with our lips. We can be, you can kind of be somewhat deceitful and tell partial truth, you know. You can tell a bold-faced lie, little white lie. They're all lies. You can act one way at church and a different way at home. Liar. I mean, yeah, we can lie with our lies. There's so many ways we can lie. And then as we look at the idea of even lying, we have this whole, even there, honoring your father and your mother. I mean, have you ever disobeyed or dishonored your parents? And the truth is, yes. This guy's guilty, but he doesn't see his sin. Not yet. So what does Jesus do? The man says, well, all these I've kept from my youth. So Jesus, and again, remember, Jesus didn't take all 10. And when you look at the 10 commandments, again, it's a law that's a schoolmaster. It's like it shows you that God has standards and, and God is holy and we don't. We don't meet up. We need to be rescued. And so verse 22, Jesus heard this and he said to him, one thing you still lack. And what is it? Look at the next two words. Sell all. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he was very sad. Why? For he was extremely rich. Now, if I were to say to you, hey, you guys, we got this ministry thing going on. I mean, it's like, and we're going different places and we're ministering the gospel. Liquidate everything you got. Your house, car, sell, everything. Bank accounts, give it all to the poor. And come, join our team. You would go, <laughs> you know, unless you're like in serious debt or something. <laughs> but you'd be like, but this isn't Jeremy calling you to do this. Here's Jesus. This is the Christ. So when you look at this, it's so amazing to me to sell all that you have. I mean, reality is if he really loved God supremely, what would he do? He would have said, hey, I'll do whatever you want. And he would have sold it all. And if he really loved people, he would have distributed to the poor, just like he said. He's just following God. He loves God. He loves people. That's just what he would have done because God told him to do it. But he didn't. He was extremely sad 
because he was extremely rich. He loved his riches. Actually, you can see even the compassion of Christ in verse 24. Jesus looking at him with sadness actually said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God! Exclamation. For it is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now what in the world is he saying by that? Now some have said this. Well, here's what it is, you know, Jeremy, because, you know, in Jerusalem you got this kind of door there. It's kind of really shallow and it's called the needle's eye. And in order for a camel to get through it, it has to kind of lean down and kind of shimmy through. And it kind of shows humility and that kind of stuff. And eh, that door actually was not around until some 300 A.D. That, that, there's no way it could mean that. Actually, in a nearby culture, when you think about this whole idea of a, a camel going through the eye of a needle, there was a cultural saying in a nearby culture with their largest animal where they would say, you know, it's impossible. It's like an elephant going through the eye of a needle, which means that's impossible. <laughs> and the truth is, is in their culture, what's their largest animal? It's the camel. And so the idea is it's impossible. It's like a camel going through the eye of a needle. Now, you know how else I know that you're clearly saying this? Because... Because look at the reaction. Because in verse 26, those who heard it then said this. Well, then, then who can be saved? In other words, that's impossible. And he said this, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Peter actually, he said, well, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to, him, said to them, well, truly I say to you, there's no one who's left their house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many more times in this, in this time and in the age to come eternal life. He's saying, yes, Peter, you've done that and you are blessed because of that. Sell all. Now we know your money doesn't get you to heaven. It wasn't the money. And can I tell you something? Jesus doesn't need your money. He owns it all. But where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Where do you put your money? That's where your heart is. It's a revealer. You know, interestingly enough, you begin to consider this and how hard it is for rich people to be saved. Why? Because rich people depend upon themselves. It's, you know, if I need something, I go get it. You know, it's a, and I'm looking at a group here and I'm saying this, I, I, you know, I know I don't know some of you very well, but I would just simply look at this crowd and say this, I'm actually looking at a bunch of rich people. Now, some of you are like, Jeremy, you don't know us. <laughs> And I'd say, well, there's some stats that came out just a number of years ago that said something like this. If you make a combined household income of at least $10,000 a year or more, 10000 then you are in the top 84th percentile in the world. I mean, if you're on welfare in America, you, you, you are, are very rich compared to the world. Now, wait a second. If you make a combined household income of at least $44,000 a year or more, you're in the top 99th percentile in the world. How hard it is for rich people to be saved. You begin to look at this and you're going, well, whoa. And, and here's a guy who actually walks away. He walks away from Christ. He walks away. Now, I will say this. I look at this 
And I really, I, I believe, I don't know if this is true, but I would say this. I believe that in the future, this man did get saved. You know why I think this? Because when he came to Christ initially, how do I inherit eternal life? He was so far because he never even saw his sin. And Jesus has taken him to tell him, don't you know who God is? You're saying I'm good. Only, only God is good. <laughs> and not only that, let me just tell you, it's your sin. That's the real problem. And the guy walks away for the first time sorrowful over his sin, but he's so much closer now to being saved than he ever was. Because before he didn't even understand his sin. So I kind of look at this and go, well, this, you're watching him get much closer. I just wonder if it was at some point down the road he went, okay, I need Christ. And I say this, and I want you to see this before we close. You have to see this, okay? Now look at chapter 19, okay? Chapter 19 shows us a, whole, a different person, and this guy's name is Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus? He was a wee little man. And a wee little man was he. And what did he do? He climbed up into a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, what did he do? He looked up in the tree and what did he say? Zacchaeus, you come down for I'm going to your house today. Some of you guys, some, some of you are looking at me like, what are you talking about, Sherry? And others, and others are you like, you grew up in Sunday school and you went, okay, I know that song. This is actually really, really biblical. Watch this. In chapter 19, verse 1, he entered Jericho and he was passing through and there was a man named Zacchaeus. And he was a chief tax collector and was rich. A, ta- a tax collector? What's that? In that day and age, what would you do? If you were going to take, collect taxes for Rome, who had kind of come in and conquered, you would have to sell your soul to Rome. Jewish people hated anybody who, because it's basically, you're, you're basically saying you care less, you just want money, and so therefore you would collect taxes. In order to make money and to get wealthy as a tax collector, you had to gouge people. In other words, you'd go to a person and say, taxes are due, and they're this amount. And they go, whoa, that seems extremely high. Well, that's what they're asking. you got to pay up. So that anything you collected above and beyond, it was yours. And so that's how they made their money. And so here he is, the chief of tax collectors, and he is rich. Now, the riffraff of society think he's awesome in a sense, probably. Um, But any normal kind of Jewish person would hate this man. And if you go even further, watch what it says about him. It says this, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small, he was a small stature. So he's a short guy. And so he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. So here he is in this tree for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus. I mean, could you imagine this? How does he know who you are? Zacchaeus. Yeah, I know you. Come down. He calls Zacchaeus to come down. Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And so Zacchaeus, he comes down. He's all mad. I didn't even clean my house. You know, it's horrible. And what was going on? <laughs> now, actually, watch what it says. This is, this is amazing. Because you see, again, genuine conversion. Watch that even in this. He says, for he, so he hurried and he came down, and watch this, and received him joyfully. And then they that saw it, who's they? These are the religious crowd. They all grumbled, saying this, he has gone to be the guest with a man who's a sinner. 
I mean, if he's, if he's really religious, he would be in the religious people's house. That's my house. Are you kidding me? Look at him. He hangs out with sinners. And I smile to that and I say, praise God. And I'm thankful, aren't you? He's a friend of sinners. Actually, if you load his verse 8 in Zacchaeus, he stood and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord. Is that a term of endearment? The idea there is if he's Lord, that means he's like sovereign one, and I'm like, you know, uh, I'm just like a subject, or he's like the master, I'm like the slave. This is, this is significant as he's doing this. And what you see, a repentant heart already. He's turned to the Lord, joyfully receiving him. And watch what he says Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. Now, could you imagine if you're the poor in that area and you hear him say this? You're like, Yeah! I mean, he's half of his goods he just gives to the poor. And not just that, if I have defrauded anyone from, of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now that means, wait a second, he's defrauded everybody from everything. This is an amazing tax return. Four times the amount he's gouged you for all these years he's gouged you. Are you kidding me? Yeah! Woohoo! And then he says this. Jesus says to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Since he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Was it because he gave of his money? No. But isn't it interesting? The heart change transformed everything, and now all of a sudden his new treasure is not that money. It's the Lord. He just wants to do whatever God wants him to do. He's defrauded people. He wants to get it right. I mean, this is, this is showing just a genuine conversion, and Jesus tells us that he is a son of Abraham now, and he's, he's came to, to rescue the lost. And so here's a rich man who gets saved, which is an encouragement to, to all of us. Is it possible for you to be saved if you're here tonight? Yes, it is. If you'd humble yourself, respond to the gospel, the true gospel of repentance and faith in Christ alone, not the phony gospel, give your life to Jesus and he'll make you a millionaire and you'll never get COVID and cancer. <laughs> That's a phony gospel. That's not the gospel of Jesus. That's not the gospel according to the apostles. But the gospel of Christ is, the, is, is calling you to repent, to to then turn from your sin to Messiah, to trust in Christ alone. My question is, has there ever been a time in your life where you've genuinely done that? Where you've come under the conviction of God because of your own sinfulness. You saw your sin clearly. You didn't want it. You wanted Christ. It's like the treasure in the field. You come across and you stumble across this treasure. And in that day and age, they're going, whoa, are you kidding me? So what do they have to do? They want to buy the field. They sell everything. They liquidate it all. And people are going, you're an idiot. Why are you selling your house for the stupid field? Are you crazy? You know, everyone's, but they know the moment they get the field, they've got the greatest treasure ever. That's, that's Christ. That's the kingdom. Are you kidding me? And so when God begins to work in your heart, you go, I don't really care what anyone else thinks. I want Christ. I want him to save me. So as we go back to this now, Luke 14, I promise I'll finish. Here it is. Ready? Emotional decisions for Christ are shameful. Wise decisions are humble and thoughtful and serious. But are you catching this? The end of that where he talks about these terms of peace. Look at verse 33 of Luke 14. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Renounce all. I think what you're seeing is Jesus is teaching it's all or nothing. 
Again, you don't kind of just try Jesus. It doesn't work that way. It's genuine repentance and faith in Christ. Actually, when you begin to look at this, the idea of renounce, or if you have, you know, forsaketh, or whatever you have within the translation there, the, that word behind there is, it's actually in the present tense, which simply means it's a constant renouncing, a constant forsaking of all that you have for Christ. It's not a one-time thing you did at the moment of conversion. And can I remind you, at the moment of conversion, you became an owner of nothing but a steward of everything. If you're here tonight as a Christian, you don't own anything. You're a steward of what God owns. And if that's the case, my prayer as you begin to consider this even tonight as believers, maybe you came here tonight and you actually came from your house and you drove in your vehicle and you came to church here But tonight, if you really grasp the message, you leave tonight here in God's vehicle, considering actually God's house and God's bank accounts. He owns it. You're a steward, and you give an account to God of what you do with your money. That's why where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And we should be saying, dear God, how do you want me to to steward your stuff? And if we're not careful, we, we go after everything here. And I would encourage you to put your money towards, towards what God has called you to. I mean, here you are. If you're in this church, you, you should naturally be giving to this church consistently. That would, be, that would be normal for a heartbeat. Someone who's been rescued by God, and this is your local assembly, and, and the functioning of this church, and the missions within the church, and you begin to consider even endeavors beyond that as well too, but to consider those things, because, because again, you don't take it with you. You don't take the stuff with you. And as you begin to consider that, um, you're going to stand before God, just like I will. How did we steward the stuff that God gave us. May God help us think. And that's why when you look at a person like this who, who actually loves Christ supremely, surrenders to him fully, he's like dying to, to smear. This weekend said, hey, let me preach against all the sins. And I, and I do that. I preach different messages that can deal with sins. But, but in one sense, I'm going, I'm going to take you to the very core in this passage to say, if you love Christ supremely, you'll forsake your sin. You'll actually put everything back in the right order because he is supreme and you'll serve him. And that great joy and love for him, the unity, everything about it would be, man, at peace with God. It's because he's supreme and you surrender to him consistently, you count the costs carefully, you think. That kind of person is actually a joy-filled person who is greatly used of God. That's my prayer for you. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes tonight. Father, thank you for your teaching, your word. And God, tonight, I ask that you would you would stir our hearts, not just in an emotional way, but Lord, it would truly bring about genuine change. Lord, there may be some in this room without Christ, and I ask God that you would work in their hearts, that even right now they would be considering the cost. And Lord, to weigh it out is a, smart, is a, is a far better thing and a smarter thing to do than to just emotionally try to jump into something without thinking. 
But God, there are some in this room who have been thinking for a while. And it's time, Lord, for them to trust in you, to repent of their sins, to come to you completely. God, I ask, would you bring them to true saving faith? And then, Father, I pray for those in Christ who have come to you as we consider renouncing all that we have, that we would be people who are constantly renouncing all, considering what you have done and what you have supplied, and, and that, God, we would be wise stewards of what you've called us to. So, God, may we leave here differently than when we came in. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed tonight, my question to you simply would be this. Has there been a time in your life where you actually understood the gospel in your head, and not just in your head, but it sank in d- deep into your heart? And you said, I don't want my sin, but I want Christ alone. I want Him to save me. I, I repent of my sins. I, I turn completely to Christ alone and trust in Christ, His death, His burial, His resurrection. My question is simply, have you been truly born again? How many in the room would say, Jeremy, when it comes to genuine conversion, it's, I believe it's evident by my own life and by my own experience before God and through His Word that I have been born again. If that's true of you, could you just slip your hand up as a testimony? Jeremy, I really believe I have been born again. Okay, and you can put your hands down. Is there anyone tonight, though, who would say, Jeremy, as you ask that question in that way, and I think about it, I don't believe I have yet, and this concerns my heart. Would you pray for me? I won't point you out. I won't do any manipulation of you moving forward and do whatever, but I will just simply ask for prayer by an upraised hand. You're saying, Jeremy, pray for me. I don't think I'm saved. Please pray for me. And you'd slip your hand up. I'd have to pray for you. Jeremy, pray for me. Okay, I appreciate that. Who else? Jeremy, pray for me. I don't know if I'm really saved. And this concerns my heart. Will you pray for me? Okay, I appreciate that. Father, I pray for this one and others that need Christ, or that they would not hold it off, but they would humble themselves in genuine repentance and faith in you. They wouldn't wait, but they'd look to you. With their heads bowed, or eyes still closed, I wonder how many Christians tonight would say, Jeremy, God is speaking to me. I, I realize. Um, I have been living uh, so often as an owner than as a steward. I act as though so often I own that. That's mine. Don't touch that. Don't mess with that. That's my bank account or however you consider it. But you would say, Jeremy, God is speaking to my heart tonight because I realize I am actually a steward, not an owner. Jeremy, pray for me as God deals with me about that. You just slip your hand out. Jeremy, pray for me. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's an honest, an honest heart because so often it's, it, to, to say that we always live that way is a very, I think, a dishonest thing in one sense, but, it's, but I think we're all, God's dealing with us. So what will you do about it? How, how will you respond to Him? Tonight, I want to invite you that you would, in your own heart, respond to say, dear God, you, you do own it all, and I surrender it all to you. Whatever you want me to do, I mean, the Lord giveth and he taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And, you know, Paul, whatever, whatever state he's in, he learned to be content. There's an element of when it comes to our stuff, we, sh- we really should have a contentment there before the Lord. Um, doesn't mean we're content with where we are spiritually. We always should lo- be a healthy discontented there where we want to move forward. But when it comes to where and what God has given to us, that we are, we are th- it's not wrong to have money. It's not wrong to have money. Um, but that love of money can be the root of all evil. So as God's dealt with our hearts tonight, would you respond to Him? We'll have our pianist play. 
God's dealing with you. If you would want to talk to someone tonight about Christ, um, you could make your way to the lobby and uh, we could talk to you there. If you come up front here, we'll have someone meet you. We would love to help you tonight. If God is speaking to your heart, you're considering the cost and not been saved yet, we would love to help you tonight. Please let us.